Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Olivia Wilde's new comedy, Booksmart. The film follows Molly and Amy, two overachieving high school seniors who try to make up for their all-work-and-no-play attitude by cramming four years' worth of partying into the night before graduation. Booksmart is Ms. Wilde's feature film directorial debut. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Wilde spoke with director Nicole Holofsaner about filming Booksmart. During their conversation, Ms. Wilde discusses how she helped the two leads, Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver, establish the close friendship necessary for the film, convincing producers that the animated Barbie drug trip sequence was absolutely necessary, and how disappointments often led to great ideas. Hi. Hello. Thank you. That was a good movie, wasn't it? I'm supposed to ask you questions, and I and I left my questions in my purse, which somebody else has. Oh. So I'm gonna have to wing it. You just wing it. We could also make these face each other a little more. Well, the, you should face the audience. We'll do both. Right. This is very cool for me. I just want to thank you guys for coming. I usually come to these Q and A's to see other directors and this movie made me a member of the DGA and I'm incredibly proud and I cried when I got my card. (laughs) Thank you. Because Nora Ephron is on the card, you know? And I just lost it. I took pictures of it and I was like, oh my God, I get to carry her in my pocket. (laughs) And I have to pay dues. There are dues? Yes. Just kidding. Um, So, Olivia's very happy and Really excited about her movie, and I think you had a great time making it. The best. Do you want to talk about how great it was? It was so great. You know, it's it's amazing when you talk about wanting to direct your first feature, you know, everyone is like, whoa, okay, it's going to be really hard, and it's going to break your heart. And <laughs> in some ways, of course, I understand that, and yet it was even more fun than I could have possibly imagined because I got really, really lucky with the most incredible crew, like truly the greatest team, which made the experience just a blast. And I I just couldn't get over the fact that as a director, you've gathered this group of people who are realizing your vision. They're bringing these weird ideas in your head into reality. And I just couldn't get over that every day. I still can't. I'm just going to be like, thanks, guys. It's like they're helping me tell this stupid story. (laughs) And they're invested. So invested. I mean, that's what really moved me, is that the crew felt such a connection to the story. And... How old were they? Like 25? We had a really young crew and we had this amazing <laughs> cast who I just was so, I'm still so in love with. And one of the things that was most important to me is that there be no separation in terms of kind of rank between the cast and the crew because I find that that's like a real flaw in the paradigm of filmmaking that, you know, of course, some sort of hierarchy is necessary for efficiency. 
but why there's the, just this huge separation between cast and crew, I don't understand. It's, it's not conducive to anybody's best work. And as an actor, I know I always felt that weirdness of being ca called, first of all, the talent, which is like the worst thing. I don't know who came up with that, but it's a terrible thing. So then the talent brought in and kept separate from the crew. And then actors are expected to be totally vulnerable front of these people in front of these people who they've been told to like to be separate from and the right. crew has been told not to look at them and yeah. this that whole system I thought we're definitely not participating in that and I know in your movies it must be the same I mean you like there's no way you run a set that's totally oh I'm a militant <laughs> dictator no not at all <laughs> no. but still like if I'm sitting on if a if a PA is sitting in a corner or something and I want to sit on that bench, I'll sit down and they'll pop up and right. leave. Right. And it's like, you don't have to do that. And yet someone next to me, you know, I'm looking through at the monitor and someone's chewing uh, gum in my ear <laughs> or on their phone yeah. right next to me. I want to kill them. Exactly. Yeah. The, my thing was like, keep with all due respect to my producers who facilitated the experience. Of course, I kept, I was like, I don't want any village. I don't want video village. So we had a video village for producers outside. They <laughs> loved that, I'm sure. And then we had just a, a standing monitor for myself and our writer producer, who's here, I believe, Katie Silberman. Are you here? Can you? She's there. She wrote and produced the film, everyone. Very proud. So Katie and I would be at the at the monitor and our DP, Jason McCormick, who's extraordinary, yeah. would be there with us and of course the crew. But like I I didn't there was no place to to sit and stop the energy of the whole thing. Um but I just found that it was all about setting the tone from jump. Like from the first moment, I just wanted to establish uh, an energy and a and a kind of a, a, as much of a democratic set as I could possibly create. But did you ha did you still feel like the boss? Did people sometimes cross a line and think you're their buddy? Or actually, no. I, no one felt like they crossed that line with me. I, I felt very much like I wanted to make everyone feel really comfortable coming to me with any question of any kind at any moment because that's the part that I loved I loved finally because you know I've spent 17 years on set mm -hmm. so here I was finally being the person who you could come to and ask a question of and the I was so honored you wanted to ask yes when you were on set yes mm -hmm. and I I was so excited about every department's experience you know so I really I loved when someone would come and say do you like the curtains like this or do you want them folded differently and I was like oh my god this is great let's talk about it um but I just really I told you she was happy I'm really happy <laughs> never been this happy because it felt it just it felt like I had um struck gold with this experience and this group of people and this story. I just loved the story so much. And I was so glad that other people loved it enough to devote their time to it. That when they cared enough to, you know, create a bedroom wall so thoughtfully that it had layers, I was so in love with them for having thought of that. You know, that's what I think is so thrilling about directing. It's, it's, you know, the opportunity to put forth an idea and then let it grow organically amongst this group of people. 
you can't possibly expect to control every element of it. But I loved watching it take its but own where's shape. The, where's the enormous disappointment? <laughs> I mean, seriously, directors, I mean, it's so, it can be so disappointing. I mean, you can't find that location or a crew member does a crappy job on something and right. it's too late and they misunderstood you and come on. I found <laughs> that, you know, all the disappointments led to really good ideas. Like it sounds so corny, but when I think back to the moments where we were told you have to cut because of money, of course, always because of money, you have to cut that character or that location or that scene. Um, in that led to some of our best ideas. Like for example, at one point we had two different characters of the principal and the lift driver. And then when things started becoming pretty tight budget wise, um, the idea came up of what if they're the same person? And then that led to kind of the definition of that character and it made it much more interesting. And there were all sorts of examples like that. But of course, my heartbreak came in post when I had to cut scenes that I loved. I mean, we yeah. just had such an insane embarrassment of riches and that was hard for me. I think the other challenge was learning that of course a director's job is just to communicate clearly yeah. and when I was trying to explain to the studio why we needed a stop motion animation Barbie trip and they were like, but it doesn't further the plot and I was like, but it does, that doesn't matter, it's totally essential. That for me was the learning curve of like, you better be really crystal clear in making your case. But sometimes you don't have a reason. It's just like it just feels right. It's right. funny. It's just funny, but you have to pretend there's an essential reason. So what, they pay for it. What was your essential Barbie reason? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, the drugs, <laughs> The drugs. But, you know, I thought, what better way to perfectly illustrate these characters than to show that their, their worst nightmare is being is turning into the physical manifestation of the patriarchy, and then the further nightmare is that one of them starts to like it, yeah. and we just thought that was so delicious and fun. But to them, it just felt, of course, like well, we're trying to cut dollars here, and that seems crazy. Stop motion animation takes so long, and we got to collaborate with this team out of Portland called Shadow Machine. And I love stop motion animation, but I'd never directed stop motion animation before, and so I got to learn about that process. And of course, it takes a long time. You don't get dailies, you get weeklies, because they shoot so many, just like a few seconds a day. I'd be like, how'd today go? What'd you guys shoot? This. And they're like, an arm yeah. moved. It was beautiful. <laughs> Great. So your two leads, had they worked together before, or known each other? They had never met. Mm -hmm. And I, when I came on board the project, Caitlin Deaver was attached, mm -hmm. which made me want to come on board even more because I thought, okay, they have really good taste. That's a good idea. It's a really good idea. And then I thought the perfect Molly to her, Amy, is Beanie Feldstein. But this was before Lady Bird had come out. Mm -hmm. And I had seen her in Neighbors 2, and I had read something she had written. She's a wonderful writer. And I just thought, she's got this innate intelligence and empathy and a killer sense of humor. I knew she was right. And she's on my original pitch deck, as is Billy Lord, which I think it's really funny that you probably rarely get the actors on your pitch deck, right? And I was super lucky that somehow that happened. But it was amazing to watch them meet for the first time because I suddenly realized I had convinced a studio yeah. to cast the leads as these two relative unknowns and I had never seen them together and I was like oh god mm -hmm. <laughs> what Hope if they like each other <laughs> what if they just hate each other and they met 
and I held my breath and they hugged for what felt like 45 minutes. They just held each other. And then they sat down at the table and held hands. And I was like, what is happening? It was like an immediate bond. They knew that this movie rested upon their chemistry. And in that same meeting, I asked them if they would live together. And they leapt at the opportunity, like within 15 minutes of being there. They were like, yes. Wow, how long did they live? They lived together for about nine nine weeks total. What? Yeah. Wait, how did you? Because they lived together through prep. Uh-huh. And then they, because Beanie lives in New York, Caitlin lives here, Beanie came out here, they lived together for a month of prep, and then they went into, they lived together through the shoot. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And do you think they could have done it without having lived together? No. No. Even though they're brilliant, I mean, they could have done a great version of it, but this yeah. specific texture of their chemistry, I think, is because of the time spent. Because they're both such nice people. Mm-hmm. That my one fear was that if they did this without getting to know each other in an intimate way, it would, the, the kind of love between, between them would be too surface level, would be too kind of positive. You know what I mean? Like a good, an old friend, you love them, but you know them and you've right. seen them grow up and there's a sense of like resilience. There's, a, there's just a, it's a different kind of energy. Yeah. And I thought, I don't want them to be laughing at every single one of the other one's jokes, right. things right. like that. And when they met, they were just so delighted by each other. Everything was like, ha, <laughs> Uh-huh. And I was like, that can't be it. No. <laughs> that can't be it. You're no. best friends for 10 years. Yeah. I need that. So living together and brushing their teeth next to each other and eating pancakes in the morning. Mm-hmm. We also had four weeks of night shoots. Mm-hmm. So they really were isolated in this bubble together. Yeah. And um, it was important because, of course, on location, the camp sort of mentality sets in for everyone. And because we were shooting in L.A., I didn't have the benefit of the of, of removing them from their kind of mm-hmm. circles. Mm-hmm. So they they self-isolated in a way that I think was necessary for this. Cool. And you talked to me earlier about um, a lot of the actors had acted for the first time in the movie yeah. or aren't actors, actually. Yeah. Why don't you tell them about that? It was so exciting. We had Allison Jones as our casting director, who's, of course, the greatest. And she knew that my goal was just to find the most authentic cast. I didn't have a mandate from a studio that told me to find famous people or influencers, which was really a relief. And so I said, let's just, we have this amazing opportunity. Let's just find the greatest actors. And she worked seven days a week looking for the kind of freshness and the authenticity we needed. And it meant that some of them are new. So Victoria Ruesca, who plays Ryan, the skater, the object of Amy's initial obsession, she is a skateboarder and she's from North Hollywood, never acted before in her life and was just brilliant. And because she had never acted, it took a kind of specific language to work with her. You know, it wasn't about having her memorize what was on the page. It was about kind of presenting a situation and letting her make it her own. And it was so much fun to do that. But of course, that would be in a scene with Caitlin, who is uh, uh, has been an actor since she was nine years old and has a very different process. So it was that fun kind of dance of speaking in one language to one actor and then changing, speaking in a different language to another. And uh, it was it was an interesting process. Caitlin has an innate tendency to help within a scene because she's so giving. She's such a sweetheart. She kind of takes wants to take care of you in a scene. But I said, you can't do that in this. I know you're trying to take care of her because she's new, but your character cannot be doing that. So she was working on holding that back. And, and Victoria was becoming, it was about making her more relaxed. Of course, it's always just about making them more relaxed. That's the thing. Like, 
I keep thinking about how a, a, a movie set is basically a construction site. That's what it feels like. And if you can create a set that's a little bit more cohesive, that allows for that relaxation, regardless of the level of experience, people will do better work. Like we had a no sides on set policy. No sides on set. Oh. Everyone had to be off book. Really? Yeah. Tough. It was because we, it was logistically necessary because we only had 26 days, mm -hmm. which of course to you is like normal. 26 days is totally doable. Mm -hmm. But for these, for, for what I knew we had, a, we had to achieve, I just thought we have to make sure that we aren't wasting any time with people learning their lines. And there's nothing that bothers me more than an actor walking into rehearsal, figuring out what the scene is with yeah. the sides as they walk in. They're like, oh, this is the one with the guy. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember this. And it's like, cool, because we're about to put it on film. It's going to last forever. Yeah. I really wish you had looked at it in the car on the way up the hill. But this was great because the kids were all call them kids they're like 20 but they're kids they were all so excited about the no sides on set they were like yes ma'am like we will do this and did you need sides did I need sides yeah of course I got sides <laughs> of course <laughs> and they would kind of look at my sides and be like can I just look yeah. but I I think it really it helped you know because I said I'll have maximum four takes but usually three takes and I said I really want you to give me three options and you can't do that if you're just figuring out what the words are um did you have a best friend like this I had a friend I had a series of really close friendships mm -hmm. but I had a friend who was my best friend I went to boarding school so it was like the pressurized version of high school in every way and I had a best friend my freshman year who was very much the Molly to my Amy, and she got kicked out of school, and it was really devastating. She didn't even do anything bad. It was just a really strict school. And, and I was suddenly lost. I was like, I have lost a limb. Where is my other half? And then I, I made so many good friends over the years, but it's funny, when making this film, I thought a lot about that friend Libby and how we really did, our identities did fold into one another in the way that they tend to do at that age, which is why separation, under any circumstance, from that first soulmate, that extreme intimacy, is really yeah. traumatizing. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. But I value, my female friends have really gotten me through my life. Sure, of course. So um, I'm curious if there was something that you were specifically really nervous about directing your mm. first feature. I mean, I'm sure many things, but if you can think of... Truly getting it all done. Getting I mean, getting it all done. Like, I had all these ideas, and I really wanted to be ambitious. You know, I really... I didn't know if I'd ever get the chance to do it again. And You will. I hope so. <laughs> I love it so much. But I really... I didn't know... You know, for instance, when I said, okay, I really want to try, yes, the stop motion, then the, the dance fantasy. And I said, if we can get that in one shot, I'd really love that to be one steady cam shot. Or I'd love to get the, the, from the pool through the fight in one shot. I just want that anxiety to build. And I thought, if things go wrong, we won't be able to do it the way it is in my head, in my dreams. And I think that was what kept me up at night. Will we get will we get enough done so that I can have those shots? And it just meant everyone being so efficient. Other than that, I can't know that I think that was that was my biggest fear. I was I was not worried about the dynamics of production because that feels like home to me. 
And I was so happy that I'd be able to give these actors the opportunity that I always wanted to feel real creative agency and relaxation and support. Um, and then, you know, from that point, it was really post-production that had the biggest learning curve for me, probably because that's the part of the process that actors aren't familiar with. It's so funny how small a section of filmmaking actors really participate in. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, to them, they're like, that's the whole movie. It's yeah. like, no, that's like 30% of the process. But I really, I loved, you know, everything. I mean, I, I, I sat through eight hours of loop group because I was like, this is amazing. Oh, that's not gonna happen again. <laughs> the, guys, the guys doing it were like, you, do, this is never, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, it's okay, just don't, don't mind me. I'm just so happy. <laughs> also, Loop Group needs to be turned into like a Christopher Guest movie immediately because that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I know, it's fascinating. Um, is this a good time to open it up to questions? Sure. Did everyone hear that? Well, you can repeat it as you answer it. Okay, maybe. great. That's the a great question idea. was, how was it working with um, Dirty Sanchez? <laughs> Gary Sanchez, but Gary I love Sanchez, you. Gary Sanchez, sorry. <laughs> I mean, they're asking for it with they're that name. They're asking for it. What did they think was going to happen? I never heard that expression before either. Sure. Um, that yeah, it. how it was how it was working. So so Will Ferrell and Adam McKay started a company, a sort of sister offshoot of their company called Gloria Sanchez, um, a bit more than five years ago. And Jessica Elbaum runs that division of the company, and she is the one who gave me this original script for Booksmart. So I am here because of Gloria Sanchez. So they were brought on to be the kind of the comedy partner for Annapurna. Um, and it was really kind of surreal to be able to show my cut to Will Ferrell, uh, someone whose comedy chops I admire greatly, and just to hear him laugh at things that we had come up with was nuts. And they, they helped us fight for things that we believed in. I remember when Will saw the pool scene for the first time, he cried. And then anytime anyone tried to cut the pool scene, I was like, Will cried. Will <laughs> Ferrell cried. Um... So, th but that was, I, I just really admire them for what exactly, as you pointed out, what they're doing for women in the industry and pushing the envelope. The company, Gary Sanchez is now dissolving, but Jessica Elbaum running Gloria Sanchez, she's still um, out there producing several things and she's a powerhouse and is always looking for new female filmmaking voices in every way. So that was an amazing thing. And then your other part, your comment about making a comedy about women where it, the point wasn't to poke fun at the lead character. It wasn't about her being or them being um, such disasters that we find it funny. They're not like such so messy that we can laugh at them. I thought it'd be really great to have a movie with funny women who are funny because of what they say. They're funny in their intensity, in their intelligence. They're in on the jokes. They understand it. They're kind of in charge of it. It's less passive. And I was really excited about that because I thought, I love that they are just, they're, they're, there's, there's kind of gangster about their nerdiness in this film. Like the, the, the characters have the sense that they're, they have no shame about being outcasts or being um, really, really super intelligent. They're not trying to assimilate. And we've seen far too many movies about women and high school movies in general where the point is assimilation for acceptance. And so the point, for us was to get away from that and to offer up 
a different version of the hilarious female heroine. Two of them, in fact, actually several of them, which was really fun. Cool. Anybody? Yes, we uh, we got a stamp of approval from Reframe, which is something that women in film very wisely put together. It's a stamp given to films that go out of their way to create a more representative set. So we had over eight female department heads, um, including, and then in, in addition to two female leads and a female director, writer, producers, editor, production designer, sound engineer, um, so many more. And it was really an honor to get that. Um, if you notice in the credits, it's the only thing in color, which we were excited about. But I, you know, I often think about the Bechtel test and think about how crazy that, I'll just restate it, I know everybody knows, but just that the only criteria is that two female characters who are named speak to one another about something other than a man. And the fact that it's still like a true, like like a real achievement to pass the Bechtel test is really sad. You're a hero. <laughs> it's like we have to raise our standards. Um, and I thought the reframe was a good way to do that. I like those new standards. Like you can, you should just try a little harder in every way. Yeah. Yes. So the question was just about how actors are often kept isolated and away from set, away from the brain trust, and kept sequestered in trailers and um, how that informed the way I, I approached this. Uh, it was one of the reasons I knew that I couldn't just act forever because I've never been good at that part of the process, the isolation, the sort of stop and start of the creative energy. I thought, how, this is not fun. It's not fun to come on and kind of activate your skills, your brain, your interest for, 30 minutes and then be put away again like the circus animals being led back into the cage. It was like, but I want to stay around. So I, from a very young age, would hang out at Video Village and ask questions. Um, and I knew a little bit about the behind the scenes process because my first job had been in, uh, uh, as a casting assistant for Mally Finn, if anybody remembers Mally, she was one of the greats. And she trained me well, but I knew that the more interesting conversations were happening at the monitor when the actors were sent away. So I started hanging out, asking questions, and just seeing honestly how problems were solved because it was just a constant sort of like flood of problems all day and how were those being just handled. Um, and I have to say, I think now, I think back on all those directors, DPs, producers, cinema, you know, uh, uh, production designers who were so generous with their time when I would say, how does that work? Why are you doing that? And they actually answered. Yeah. They had no time to do so, but they were. No, but I think people are open to that. You know, I mean, when I'm working, I'm very happy if somebody's curious and interested. That's great if I have time. If there's time, yeah. of which there's never yeah. any. But you've been. I mean, when I met you, you were about to make a short film. That's right. A uh, th thousand years ago, mm -hmm, maybe. Mm -hmm. I cold called her, and she met me for lunch. And she was like, you know I'm not casting a movie right now, right? <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I know. I just want to pick your brain we about nice directing. Lunch. Yeah. And so what have you directed before this? Okay, so I did one short film, which was part of a, a project that really should be, it should start up again. It, no, it was it was um, it was called Glamour Real Moments. It was right. the Glamour magazine sponsored shorts for female filmmakers um, with a pretty hefty budget for shorts, and it was great. I benefited from that and got to learn a little bit at that point. That's when I realized I was more happy directing. I was happier directing than I ever had been. Then I started doing music videos, 
and continue to feel sure that this was the direction I wanted to move in. And I tell every new director or someone who wants to direct and hasn't done it yet, make a music video. Because I shot one on iPhones that's really great and I'm proud of it and you don't need the equipment. But With it's a famous people you're talking about? Well, it w that one was for a band called Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros who are, one of their songs is in our soundtrack. Mm -hmm. um, and that one, uh, my really good friend Reed Morano, who is now of course an amazing director in her own right, she DP'd it for me. Mm -hmm. And the challenge from Apple was, can this be shot on iPhones? And uh -huh. we were like, yeah, with some really nice lenses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we did that, and then uh -huh. I did a Red Hot Chili Peppers video with some young women in it that I that are the reason I wanted to make Booksmart is I was in the edit for that video lingering on these shots of the young girls interacting with one another, and I was like, that, that's the story I want to tell. Mm -hmm. This world between young women it's so there's so much mm -hmm. so it all yeah. led to this mm -hmm. all the experiences all the good yeah. and the bad that's good any any more he's jason is one of the best improvisers in the world and i think directing improvisers is something that's really interesting because you you know that they can go on you know they can go completely off and that's what they do they can take it in these inc extraordinary directions but i loved that you know we were able to give jason a little bit of information and he went off with it while keeping it in the world of the story while continuing to tell our story and i love that our young actors could be in those scenes just watching him and thinking like that's a superpower but it's an example of the amount of different styles we had. You know, we had Beanie Feldstein had just come off a year on Broadway doing Hello, Dolly. Wow. So she was in a one mental space. She probably said less. less yeah, she was like, less. she just knows how to use her body too. <laughs> Everything was like, she's so physically aware of how to communicate with her body. And she's all these idiosyncrasies that are just like incredibly um, just interesting and specific. And... And then, you know, Skylar Gisondo, who plays Jared, who I think just did an extraordinary job. He's someone who prepares very specifically and then brings that choice to set. And he's really, really good. And Noah Galvin, who plays George, he's also a theater actor and just extraordinary off the cuff as well, a great improviser. But it was amazing how many different styles we had on one set. And then, of course, the challenge of like, keep this in tone. Um, I guess when you ask, like, what, what kept me up at night, sort of what was I worried about, it was that. It was like, can you manage a tone? Can you, can you control a tone? Um, and I think what I learned, and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> is that you get, you, you, you make sure you're clear about the vision so everyone has a chance to understand the tone you're going for, but then allow people to deviate from this path, and then in the edit, pack it all back into that tone exactly, yeah. <laughs> with some surprises that you could never have planned for. It's pretty for. hard to explain tone to an yeah. actor. I mean, I've had an actor, you know, be really melodramatic in a scene and um, that's not the movie, right. you know, and um, trying to get them to understand this is not that movie yeah. is hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that's why people use comps. I mean, I guess that's the best thing, like references that allow for some sort of understanding. For this one, I think they probably thought I was insane because my references were everything from Training Day to The Big Lebowski. And people were like, what is she talking about? But it all made perfect sense to me. Yeah, cool. Um, you want more questions? So I really, my, my major goal was to create a, 
a, a visceral connection between the audience and, and the girls to bring people who weren't teenage girls into that mindset. And I thought what I don't, what I see in a lot of films that doesn't work for me, a lot of films about young people is this kind of a distance, a sort of patronizing energy of like, oh, how quaint, how funny that they care so much about their lives, those little lives. And I thought, let's reconnect to how high those stakes are when you are in that mindset. And so f it was such a priority in terms of designing the shots with Jason McCormick, the DP. I said, we have to create a language that connects us to them in, hectic moments in in calm moments and in the devastating moments and our steadicam operator chris harhoff had actually shot birdman so once i knew that i was like we're gonna do some long <laughs> steadicam shots <laughs> through lots of hallways but it was very cool to kind of put that together with them and say we need to create a vibe a feeling that you're staying within the world of these two girls that that we never feel we we leave them completely it's noticeable when they leave one another and we should feel that like when amy jumps into the pool she's left molly behind and she's shedding her skin um and then when she needs to find her again an environment that moments ago was so promising is now so sinister so it was about working with everyone at that point to create that shift um in production it was about creating that language with the cinematographer the operator of course uh everybody involved but in post we had a, a few revelations i remember watching the fight in the edit and saying, what if we, the fight, the big fight between the girls at the party and saying, at this point, I don't need to hear the words they're saying. Could we get away with dropping out the dialogue? And I was so thrilled. We tried it and I loved it. I loved the swell of the score at that point. And I loved that it meant we all, we in the audience have to project our own pain onto that conversation. And it just shows that it doesn't matter at that point what they're fighting about, it doesn't matter. And I noticed that um, I really liked that the people in the background were out of focus. Yeah. And we could see that they were all looking yeah. at them. And they're filming them. Yeah, exactly. But they were in such a bubble that yeah. it didn't, they didn't care. Yeah, and the moment's yes. over when Amy walks away, you kind of feel the kind the sound <laughs> suck back in and that cold feeling of of everyone suddenly being in their bubble again. But that was the joy of of the sound mix, which I find to be such an opportunity, such a great. And that was of course a new experience for me. I was like, "Oh, this is great to rewrite the whole movie again with sound." What a dream. Great. Yeah. The your person in the front. Yes, hi. Yeah, so in terms of asking them to be totally prepared but allowing for improvisation, I just wanted them to know the rules so they could break them. I just needed everyone to understand this very tight foundation of a script and then have a chance to play from there. What I didn't want them to do is to, to arrive without knowing what the scenes were about. So that's where that came from. It was a balance of, I don't need you to stick to every word. I will never be maniacal about each you know, punctuation, but I want you to know what this is about. Then you can play. Um, and then what was the second part of your question? Rehearsal and storyboarding. So I had, Scott Robertson was my AD who is incredible. And he knew that the performances were my real priority and I really wanted to rehearse as much as possible. And 
I fit it into the schedule as many times as possible. I just, you know, people, actors, reps will always say like, they have one day available to rehearse. And I was like, no, give me their phone numbers. (laughs) (laughs) So we pulled them in for many rehearsals. And then I set them up on play dates. Like I needed the friendships to all feel real. So for the guys in the movie, I'd say, okay, I want you to go to a movie and an arcade and then go hang out at somebody's house. Mm -hmm. And I want you to send me videos. (laughs) So I know you did it. And they sent me the funniest videos they're just having the greatest time and they count that as being formative for their work and then the girls I had them living together and then I had them kind of working in different groups um and it it was an exciting thing to be able to rehearse on location I've never done that as an actor and Scott the AD said if if we, I think we can pull this off if you want to bring them on the last scout so it was really fun because particularly for the girls in their bedrooms I wanted that to feel like they'd been there before. Um, I don't think we got to go to the school in rehearsal because school politics for shooting is just always so tricky when you can get in there. Um, But that was for rehearsal. And then storyboarding, I only storyboarded the car chase at the end and the graduation. And I have to say, I got there and kind of hated all the storyboards immediately. And I was like, let's just throw them all away right now because I liked being able to be responsive to what we saw and the light and what the actors were doing. They were always doing something more interesting than I could have predicted. So while I totally respect the art of storyboarding and could see myself trying it for a very different vibe of movie, for this one, it felt like it got in my way. Um, Of course, we needed it very specifically for the animation sequence but other than that I didn't find it that useful okay we have to be done now oh (laughs) thank you thank you you so much (laughs) I appreciate it thank you you so much Nicole thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A if you'd like to hear more you can find past episodes of the director's cut wherever you listen to podcasts be sure to subscribe and please take a moment to rate and review us We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 